The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are going to be. If uh, you have a phone or a tablet, you could open those up to Ephesians 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, We've got hardback black Bibles under every chair. You could open that up to Ephesians 1. Uh, In those black Bibles, it's page 976. Uh, But we'd love for you to have this in your hands. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. After teaching last Last week on election and predestination, I wasn't sure anybody would show up this week. Um, so, but you made it. Uh, you are truly the elect. I'm proud of you. I mean, welcome, welcome back. Okay, you're 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 predestined to be here. Um, so, as you're turning to Ephesians one, for a number of years, uh, I've been getting these migraines. I've told you about this once before. I've been getting these migraines uh, with what's called aura which uh, I, I did a little research on. There are these headaches that, that hit me, that, these headaches that hit me, but they're not real. I've had migraines that are really painful. These ones aren't so painful as there's this visual disturbance called aura, which is, uh, it's like flashes of light and blind spots. Other vision changes happen in these migraines with aura. Uh, the way I've described it is this, like if you stare into the sun or into these lights for too long, and then you look around and you see that kind of blobby, blurry sort of thing in front of your vision, you can't really see it. The headaches are like that, but the blob doesn't go away. It's just like right there in the center of my vision, and I can't read, and I can't see very well. Um, and they, they're really not, they're not much more than an inconvenience for me, because they're not like painful, like I've got to take drugs and like hide myself away in a cave for a few hours, that kind of migraine. Um, but the, the inconvenience kind of came to a T a few years ago on a Sunday morning, All right, uh, Sunday morning, right before preaching, I'm standing in the hallway greeting people, and this blob shows up in front of me. And normally it's Mark Reister, but it wasn't (laughs) Mark Reister. I love you, man. Yeah. It's this, this, this. That was good. I hadn't, that's not in my notes, that joke. Um, as I'm standing in the hallway greeting people, I start to see blob in front of me. And one of these headaches comes on me right before I'm going to get up and preach. And y'all, I've got the Bible here. And I'm like, hey, look at it with your eyes. And I can't, right? I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it, but I couldn't see very well. And my notes, and I couldn't really, I mean, it was, I, we muscled through it. It wasn't the worst sermon I've ever preached, but it wasn't the best, all right? And I managed to make it through that. But it kind of freaked me out at that point. And so uh, I decided I, I should go get this checked out. Go to the doctor, tell him what's going on. He's like, you really should get an MRI of your brain. You should get an MRI brain scan uh, just to make sure it's not something sketchy, all right? And, and so, so I go to get the MRI uh, and then I wait two weeks, which is always nice when you get your brain scanned. Yeah, just take two weeks. Think about it for every waking moment. Okay, great. Um, so I found out what's wrong with my head. Here, here's what the results say, okay? This is, what I'm, I, this is exactly what they said, findings, there is no atrophy, there is no hemorrhage, there is no mass legion, le, les, lesion, I'm a doctor. There's no midline, no midline shift is identified. There's no infarction or diffusion abnormality. There's no gross bone lesion identified and the paranasal sinuses are clear. Clear. I, I don't know what any of that means. I, I, I'm assuming that the, there is no part 
followed by whatever other words is a good indication, right? There's no lesions in my brain. That's awesome news. But then right below this, okay, right below the findings, it says like a summary statement. And this is what my summary of my brain MRI said. Unremarkable brain. (laughs) Which I thought was hurtful and unnecessary. It's actually the only time I want my brain unremarkable, right? Is after a scan, okay? I I bring this up uh, because every time I get one of these headaches, every time I get one of these visual disturbances where I'm unable to see clearly things right in front of my face, I get a small reminder of how precious the gift of sight is. Um, it's, I mean, it's certainly to no extent, uh, it's not to the extent to what some of our friends from the Colorado Center from the blind experience, goodness, uh, or even some of you that may have had kind of diminishing vision, diminishing eyesight struggles. It's not to that same extent, but I get like a little taste of it. And it reminds me how different my life would be without sight. This is what Paul brings up in the second half of Ephesians chapter one. Uh, so, so if you remember last week, if you were here last week, uh, Paul gave us a 202 word theologically magnificent run on sentence about, about how God saves us. That's what we talked about at length last week. And, and then in the second half of chapter one, it's like Paul takes a deep breath. I mean, you'd have to after that sentence, right? It's like he takes a deep breath and he presses pause on his theology for a second. And what he does is he prays. The second half of the first chapter of Ephesians is a prayer. Uh, he stops theologizing. And what Paul does is he prays for the Ephesian Christians. And this is his prayer for them, that they would have sight, that they would see. See, Paul knows that just explaining these great mysteries around salvation is simply not enough. It isn't more information that they are needing, but rather they need illumination, all right? They need to see, they need their eyes to be opened to all the realities that he talked about last week. So that's what we're gonna see in the text today. Let's get into the text. I think the way that Paul prays for the Ephesians is exactly what he would pray for us and what I want us to pray for us and what I pray for our church. So here we go, Ephesians chapter one. We're gonna start in verse 15 Look at your text with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, that's the start. Paul is about to pray for them. And here's where it picks up. Verse 17, this is what he prays. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, stop right there. This is what Paul is praying for Christians In Ephesus, for the believer, he is praying that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, would be opened. That's where that 90s worship song comes from, right? Open the eyes of my heart, right? You know that song? That's where it's from, Ephesians chapter one. And and so, so Paul wants them to see. He wants them to see with their heart. 
And how's this going to come? How's this sight going to come? Well, the text says that the Father gives it through the Holy Spirit. He gives it, and, and what he says is he gives the knowledge of him, the knowledge of God. So that's Paul's primary prayer for his people. I'll put it up on the screen like this, that they would know God that they would know God. This is the most important thing to Paul concerning these Christians. He wants those people to know God, to have a knowledge of God. And, And I think that's for us too. If he were writing a letter to us, he would say, I want you to know God. That doesn't mean to just know facts about God, all right? You follow me there? It's way more than just facts. He says you have to have the eyes of your heart opened. Your heart doesn't have eyes. You know that, right? It's, it's a metaphor for, for the, the deep center of your being needs to be enlightened in the ways of God. Now, in the Greek mindset, in the Greek language, there are two primary words for knowledge. Two words for knowledge. Ido is the first one. Say Ido with me. Ido. Nice. The second word is gnosko. Say that one with me. Gnosko. That's a fun one to say, right? Okay. Ido and gnosko. Ido refers to the, uh, the interpretation of facts or data. Ido is facts or data. I know that Denver is the capital of Colorado. That's Ido. Okay. I know that teranophobia is the fear of being tickled by feathers. Real thing. You can Google it. Okay. I know that cats are the worst. (laughs) See, it's, it's knowledge of facts. That's what this is. It's true. It's factual. Okay. That's Ido. But then the second word in the Greek is gnosko. Gnosko, okay? And it refers to a different type of knowledge, and that's actually the word that's used that Paul uses in verse 17. It's a different knowledge. It's it's a personal, felt knowledge in the Greek. The Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in, the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word gnosko, uh, often referred to sexual intimacy that is uh, a husband and wife would share together. That's what the, the Hebrew equivalent is. So if you remember back to Genesis 4, chap, uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam knew his wife Eve. He knew Eve. That's the, the equivalent there. That doesn't mean they just exchanged some relevant facts about one another, right? Oh, you grew up in a garden, did you? Your favorite food is fruit, right? Oh, interesting. Oh, you have a pet snake? That should be concerning to me, right? Like, no, it's not just facts, that he's sharing here. The text says Adam knew Eve, his wife, and now here's the second half. And she conceived and bore a son named Cain. So it's the biblical gnosko knowledge. This is the knowledge that Paul's talking about. So he wants Christians, he wants us to know God in a way that is much more than simply information and facts. The intimate experiential knowledge is what he's talking about. It's gnosko. See, when the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our hearts, he takes the ido, the knowledge of God, about God, and he makes us know him. Gnosko. That's what the enlightenment of the eyes of our heart 
means. So it reminds me, if you are familiar with the Bible, it reminds me of the last chapter of Job, the book of Job, okay? Uh, If you know the story, Job loses everything as God allows Satan to test him. And the majority of the book of Job is uh, Job wrestling with who God is and why all of this is happening to him. And it's, it's 40 some 42 chapters of kind of wrestling. And by the end of the book, God basically just kind of slaps Job around and challenges him in, in, a, in, a, in a loving rebuke concerning God's grandeur and his majesty. And this is what Job says after God kind of just schools him. Here's what it says, Job 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I'd heard of you, but now I can see you. This is the knowledge that Paul is praying for us, that we would know God. And I think, I think this might be one of the main reasons for, for so many of us evangelicals in churches today, why we sometimes feel spiritually stuck at times why we feel like we rut out at times. Because I think what we know with our minds, what we Ido, sometimes does not become known to us in our hearts, gnosko. See, for every single one of us in this room, this is our primary need. Paul's prayer for us is the same. Our primary need is to know him to know God, to gnosko him more and more and more. And and to know him in this way, we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. So this is what Paul starts with. He prays that you'd know God. He prays that you'd know God. Now, that seems simple enough, but he breaks it down. He gives you from here three outworkings of a knowledge of God. And so that's what we're gonna see with the rest of our text. So let's look together at verse 18. I know we started this, but let's uh, continue verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So let's stop there. This is the first one. As you know God and you have the eyes of your heart enlightened, one of the ramifications in your life is that you begin to know hope. You know God And that lets you know hope. Now, again, our English word for hope, like our English word hope, it doesn't really communicate fully what Paul means here. Because when we talk of hope in English, when we use the word hope, we refer to something that you hope will happen, that you want to happen, but you're just not sure if it's going to happen. Right? Will I get that job that I want? I hope so. Will I meet that special someone this year? Goodness, I hope so. Like if the Broncos gonna win the Super Bowl this year? I hope so. Doesn't look good after last week, but I don't know, you know? See, when we talk about hope, we mean uncertainty. But whenever the Bible, the New Testament specifically talks about hope, it means certainty. It doesn't mean uncertainty, it means certainty. This is one of the worst and hardest things about translating Greek into English in the New Testament, and there's really no way around it. Scholars don't know exactly how to get around this one, but but the word hope in the Bible means absolute certainty. 
It's the hope that we have in Christ. Biblical hope isn't wishful thinking. Rather, biblical hope is something that you're sure of. It just hasn't happened yet. It just hasn't happened. See, the word hope in the Bible means certainty. So, so then what is it that we can hope in? What is it that we can be absolutely certain of? What's Paul talking about here? Well, it's, it's what he taught last week in that masterful sentence. What can we be absolutely certain of? You can be certain of your salvation. You can be certain that God has saved you. Why? Because back to what we talked about last week, because it's God who does it. It's God who went first. It's God who chose you first. It's God who loves you first. You see, if if you're trying to save yourself, like a works-based religion, if you're trying to save yourself, you can never be sure that you've done enough. You just never be sure if you've balanced the scales in your favor. But when you know Gnosko, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It fills you with certainty that works-based faith does not fill you with. See, hope for believers is not, it's not wishful thinking. It's not, I hope I'm saved. But it's absolute certainty that God will make true on his promises. So Tim Keller uses this illustration. I thought it's helpful. He says, imagine you found, um, found out that you, that you had a long lost relative uh, who, who passed away, who died, um, but come to find out that this relative left you billions and billions of dollars in an inheritance. And all you had to do to claim those billions and billions of dollars was to go to the bank and sign a piece of paper. That's all you had to do. Okay? Anybody not going to the bank? Uh-uh, no, it doesn't matter how crazy that uncle or whoever it was was, you're going to the bank. But, but let's just imagine you get in your car and you're gonna drive to the bank and about a mile from the bank, the car breaks down. Your car breaks down. What's your response at that moment? Are you angry? Like, are you frustrated? Do you get upset and do you get out of the car and start kicking the tires and like cursing? God, why is this happening to me, right? You do any of that? No, you don't. No, you absolutely don't. I don't care how much that car is worth. Okay, I don't care how much of your stuff is in the trunk of that car. You wouldn't even call a tow truck. You'd leave that hunk of junk sitting right. It could be a Tesla. Leave it and you're going to sprint the last mile to the bank. Why? Because you know the inheritance that's promised you at the end of that, that run. Who cares about that car? You're going to have billions and billions. Your inheritance is your great hope. Your inheritance is your hope, and it'll trump anything that you might lose on the way to get it. That's what Paul's praying for us to know. That we would know God, and that will allow us to know hope that'll transcend every circumstance in your life. Certainty. Okay, next one. Back to verse 18 again. Verse 18 again. He said that you may know what the hope of, uh, what is the hope to which he has called you, comma, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? All right. There's another outworking of knowing God. 
First, it lets you know hope, but next, you can know worth. You can know your worth as you have the eyes of your hearts opened. Now, this is a tricky one, this, this, this little verse here, because it, it says inheritance. Um, and the question is, whose inheritance are we talking about here? Whose inheritance are we mentioning? Now, if you look at the pronoun, okay, it doesn't say that it's our inheritance. It's not our inheritance that we're talking about. That was actually last point. Our inheritance is the hope that we have that God will bring about our salvation to completion, right? That's our inheritance. But now this is, the text says, his glorious inheritance. So God has an inheritance coming his way. That's a bizarre thought. It seems strange to me. God has an inheritance. Like what in the world could God conceivably be waiting on? What in the world, like for a God who has everything, you ever try and buy a gift for somebody who has everything or just buys everything for themselves? Like, what am I going to get this guy, right? For the God who, ha- who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, for that God who has everything, what could he be waiting on as an inheritance that's described as glorious? Well, the text tells us it's the saints. The saints, that's, that's you. That's me. You see, because of God's choosing and redeeming and adopting and sealing us, we are now his possession. And now he's just waiting to fully gain that inheritance. See, the one thing, the one thing that God did not have that he was willing to go to the cross to, to, to bleed out for was you. That's a, that is a thought that's almost too glorious to comprehend. The one thing that he didn't have was you and he died for it. But listen, as you know God more, know him, gnosko him in your heart, you will begin to know, to comprehend your un, I mean, the, the inconceivable worth that you have to him. The value that you carry, the immeasurable worth of the saints. So this is what Paul's saying. When you see how precious you are to God, this will totally transform your life. It's not mere intellectual assent and knowledge. You will feel at a heart level how unbelievably gracious God is to you. Another Keller illustration, just because he's great, okay? Tim Keller says this. Um, he uses this illustration. So Harper, our daughter, uh, is at a, still at this fun point at, in life. She's seven, uh, which means that she lo- still likes me. I've heard that goes away for a season and then it comes back. But she's at the point where she still likes me, which is great. All right, I'm, I'm liking it. But this is what happens still, like even at seven. The moment I walk in the door from work, like as, as soon as I am opening the door, she, whatever she's doing, if she notices that I'm home, she, she drops what she's doing. She gets this big old grin uh, on her face. She goes, daddy. And then she runs to me and comes into my arms for a big hug. It doesn't matter what she's doing. She could be watching. TV, which is like a drug. 
okay? And she still will run to me and give me a hug and a kiss. Now, uh, I know this won't always be the case. If she does this at 16, I'm gonna praise the Lord. Like, I'll become charismatic, y'all, all all right? I'll just start speaking in tongues and get snake oil and do all the things, okay? Um, So I'm trying to take all this in while I've got this going on. Um, and, And sometimes here's what happens, okay? Sometimes she does it and I'm just like, this is great, I love this. But then sometimes... Like sometimes as I wrap her up in my arms, I look at her and I get just kind of like overcome with this fatherly love and emotion for her. It doesn't happen every time, but sometimes it does. And in those moments, what I'll do is I'll pick her up and I'll spin her around in the air and I'll kiss her face and, and, so, so, and I'll hold her tight and, and she will grab a hold of both of my cheeks like this and squish them like that. <laughs> and she'll look at me square in the eyes she goes, daddy. And it's like, oh, that's, 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 that's the real drug right there, right? That's the real thing. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world. This like fatherly emotion that just pours out all over my girl. Now, reflecting on that, before that moment of spinning and kissing and face squishing, okay, Harper knows that I love her. And she knows that. Nothing is tangibly changed in those few seconds of interchange, right? I still provide for her needs. I'm still committed to her. Like she still knows that daddy loves her. But in that moment of display of affection, that moment of joy, she feels my love for her in a different way, right? It is manifested differently in that moment, That's what Paul wants us to feel. That we'd know a sense of the majesty and the beauty of God in our hearts. That that, that we'd experience his deep, deep love and value of us. That we would know our worth. Daddy, that'd be our response. Listen, if God isn't real to you like that, this is what you should be praying for. This is what Paul would pray for you, that you would come to know your worth to him. Okay, one more for today. As we know God, we know hope, we know worth. One more, let's look at verse 19. And that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, what happened there is Paul got carried away for a second. It's another one of those run-on sentences, for reals. It's, it's, he got going and he could not stop. Typical Paul, but, but what we see here is that as we know God more and the eyes of our hearts are opened, we will know power. We'll know God's power, the immeasurable greatness of his power. 
God wants us to know that the power with which he is working in and around and through us in this world is the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. It's resurrection power. That's why he he just can't stop talking about how immeasurable this power is that he offers to us. Paul says, if God brought life out of death with Jesus then he can bring healing and life in your world where you've made a mess of things and you've made a mess of your heart. In the midst of anything you are going through, you need to see, see with clear eyes, his power is at work in and through you. He is working in every situation for your good and to accomplish his purposes. He's at work. He's powerful. I'm reminded of uh, an Old Testament story, really great story in 2 Kings chapter 6. You don't need to turn there, but let me give you the summary uh, of this. Israel is at war with the Syrians, the Syrians, okay? And at this point, uh, the prophet Elisha is uh, working with Israel. Uh, He's one of the prophets. And in the text, he and one of his servants, they are with the army of Israel up against the army of Syria. And 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 says this. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So the Syrian army is surrounding Israel's army. The servant sees them in the morning and freaks out. He freaks out because they're surrounded by horses and chariots by a much stronger force. And so he says, what are we going to do? He goes to the prophet Elisha. What do we do? Look at Elisha's response, verse 16. Elisha said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. To which the servant probs thought, bro, I can count. Okay, look around at us. You're missing the boat here, Elisha. But then verse 17 says, then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha prays that the servant's eyes would be open and he sees that the forces of the Lord are surrounding the forces of Syria that are surrounding the forces of Israel, that there are angelic horses and chariots of fire fighting for them. Now, this is one thing that's really important to note here. When Elisha prayed... God didn't send the armies. God didn't send the power in response to Elisha's prayer. The army was already there. The power was already available. He just prayed that the servant would see it. Church, the question is not 
has God sent us power? The question is, do you see it? Have you seen his power? Listen, you don't need to pray for his power. You don't need to pray for his power. You need to pray that your eyes would be open to see that it's already available to you. You gotta know power. There are a lot of ways that we could apply this. There are a lot of ways that we could apply this point about knowing power, but um, let me just give us one point of application. Our sin. Our sin. Listen to me on this. Jesus' blood not only releases you from the penalty for your sin, Jesus' blood actually releases you from the power of your sin. Now, as Christians, yes and amen to the penalty being erased. Death, hell, eternity, and separation from from God. Yes, that penalty from sin because of Jesus' final work on the cross is taken care of. The power of God does take care of the penalty of our sin. But then I hear this all the time from people. Well, pastor, I just don't think I can beat this sin in my life. I just don't know. I mean, I'm glad that that I'm forgiven by Jesus' work on the cross, but I think this just might be my cross to bear. I can't get rid of this sin. I can't stop doing this one thing. And to, to that, Paul would say, no. No, no, no. Jesus did not only die to release you from the penalty of your sin. Jesus, in fact, died to give you his power through the Holy Spirit that you might overcome your sin. I'm preaching to somebody here. You're white, I know. Let's just write these notes down, okay? (laughs) Listen, when you become a Christian, you get that power to stop sinning. Before you were a Christian, you had no choice in the matter. You could never stop sinning. But now, with the Spirit's power, you actually have the ability, the power of the Holy Spirit, to overcome your sin. This is why Jesus will often say to people in the Gospels, go and sin no more. He didn't mean go and try not to sin, but you're going to keep sinning, so don't worry about it because I got you covered. He said, go and sin no more. He means no more. He means it. It's not a fool's hope. So church, this is the problem, okay? The problem isn't that your sins are so strong that you can't overcome them with the power of the Spirit. The problem is not that your sins are too strong. It's a sight problem. There's something wrong with the eyes of your heart. It's a knowing problem. It's not that your sins are too strong. It's that your love for Christ is too weak. It needs to grow. You need to see more clearly. The only way, the only way that you will bring sin into captivity is when your love for God is increased. You say, well, how does that happen? How do I grow in love for Christ? The answer is simple. You look at him. You look at Jesus. You see him lifted up. You see him bleed for you. You see the greatness of the sacrifice that he gave on your behalf. You see that and you see how powerful God is to bring him back from the grave and you see that and it will transform your heart. Does that sound simple? Sound too simple? Just look at Jesus. 
It is. It's unbelievably simple and it's unbelievably difficult. This is not that complex, but let's be real. It is difficult. Simplicity and easy are not synonyms in this one. Only when you see him with the eyes of your heart, when you know God, it will allow for you to know the certainty of your hope, to know how great your worth is, and to know his power at work in you. This is what Paul prays for us in Ephesians chapter one. So listen, I want to end like this. If you've been around here at Fathom for a minute, you know this about me, okay? I am serious about the Bible, Man, I'm serious about the text. This is why we preach the way that we preach. I'm serious about theology. I'm serious about doctrine. I am serious about Ido, knowledge, right? I mean, for goodness sake, I've given you two charts in, three of, in the last three sermons that I've given you. Charts. Charts. I saw you taking pictures of the charts. So you're serious about Ido too. We are serious about these things. I want you to keep growing in your knowledge about God. But hear me, I've been following Jesus for 20 some years now and I've just seen and experienced some stuff in my Christian journey that, that I can't unsee. Like things that, that seem to surpass doctrine at times. Things that are outworkings of theology that feel kind of crazy at times. I mean, things that are more than Ido. I've seen addictions, deep addictions broken in people. That's not a know about. That's not more information. That's gnosko. That's a transformation of the spirit. I've seen people healed, physically healed in this very room. I've, I've seen marriages restored. I've, I've seen people way far away from Jesus so far away from Jesus that you'd think the Lord would never be able to get a hold of that heart. And I've just seen without even breaking a sweat, the Lord call those to himself. These are things that I can't unsee. And so while I am all about us knowing about God, this is actually my prayer for us, for me, for you. Guys, I wanna, I wanna taste and see some more. I want to know him more. Know him, gnosko him. I want to know him more. I want to feel him more. And I want that for you too. So yes and amen to faithful study and development of our minds. And yet I'm also praying for this, the Holy Spirit to just break through and do something crazy. Like I'm desperate to know my hope is certain in Christ. I'm desperate to know that my worth is so much that he died for me. I am desperate to know the power of God more and more in my life, conquering my sin, conquering the places in me where I'm still, that's just still clinging to the old man. I'm desperate for these things. I want to see that and I want you to as well. So I'm just pleading with the Holy Spirit in my prayers for you, like Paul's prayers for, for Ephesus, my prayers for us is that the spirit would break through and just do something that, that blows our minds and melts the hardness and coldness of heart that sometimes comes with only idoing God. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And listen, church, it's time to stop settling for blurred vision. 
the migraines with the little blob. And it's, it's time to stop settling for that spiritually. It's not enough to, I can kind of see. Maybe if I turn my head and squint, I can kind of make things out clearly. It's actually time to have the eyes of our hearts opened. So listen, I pray that where we might be blind, each one of us, I pray that would be made sight right now, this morning. God, I want to see. Open up my eyes. Let's pray this together. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for the goodness of this message, the goodness of this scripture, the goodness of this prayer prayed by your, 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 your servant, Paul, and recorded for us to study. And yes, this is knowledge. This is head knowledge. This is important information, doctrine, theology, things that we want to give mental assent to. But Father, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that there's more here. That that might be the tip of the iceberg and underneath is a real, deep, intimate, felt knowledge of who you are. God, I pray we would, we would grow in knowing you that way. That we would know the hope, that we would know our worth, and that we would know the immeasurable power that's available to those who call on you as king. Lord, those who are hearing this, I pray, would, would respond in faith. Some maybe for the first time, they would just say, my eyes are being opened to the knowledge of you for the first time. Some for, for, for the hundredth, thousandth time to just say, God, I want to know you more. I pray our response would be a desire to worship and to know, to have the eyes of our hearts open. So Holy Spirit, we can't do this on our own. We can study. We can Ido all day long, but we need you to fill us, to transform us, Back to the very beginning of this passage, we need you, Holy Spirit, to enlighten us with the knowledge of God. Do that. Do that more and more as the day approaches. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.